Let's read Mark 8, verse 34. Then he crawled, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Lord, this is your word. Help us as we look at it that we may hear it as the word of the living God. Help us to be focused upon you and not upon ourselves. Help us, O Lord, so that we may be changed people as we respond to your living and enduring word in your name. Amen. Now, we uh, have been going through the Gospel of Mark in the evenings here. Uh, in the morning, we've been doing First John, and next week, I'm going to try uh, Jeremiah. And we go, generally go through the Bible systematically because it's a great way of uh, preventing a preacher just choosing his own hobby horses. Um, for those of you who are visiting here as part of the CU Church Crawl, uh, you may think, oh, he just chose this passage to have a go at us. Uh, I didn't. Uh, it's basically the next one up from what we were looking at last week, and yet I think it is particularly relevant to uh, our situation this evening. I think that one of the great curses in our culture is what we might just call meism. That is the, the view that I am the person who matters. I am, I am the the, the most important person when it comes to my life and when it comes to things that are happening. We are consumers, not givers. And that is what happens in the church as well. And it's a disaster. Uh, I know I look incredibly young, but I've been a minister for 24 years. And uh, I, it's the one thing, I think, that does more harm in the church than anything else is people who look to their own interests and not, as Paul puts it, to the interests of Christ. Although we use the language of Christianity and even the language of service, it's generally language that is all about ourselves. Now, that happens uh, with older people. You get um, young couples who have children who come along to a church and they ask, what can this church give me? You get older people who come into a church and they ask, what can this church give me? And then you get younger people, you get students in a Christian union going on a church crawl. And the whole idea, isn't it, that you go around and you assess all the different churches and you kind of tick on the wee box. Okay, nice church, rubbish preacher, music not so great, music brilliant, whatever. Weird, as uh, Sarah said, uh, or whatever categories you have. You just kind of sit in there with that mental kind of tick box. Uh, one of the guys came uh, in, one of uh, our older men said, it seems as though all Christian students are in Dundee are female. And he said, if they all came here, he said, what would happen? And I said, what would happen? He said, we'd get lots of males. Well, that is a criteria for some people. They just look around and they, um, they, they say, oh, I wonder who's here. 
and there can be very many different motivations for coming to a church. I remember when we started the church plant in St. Andrews, we have a church plant in St. Andrews, that a family wanted to come and help, and they felt that God was calling them to help, to come from quite a distance away, actually from London. And they came up to have a look at the situation, and they said they couldn't do it. And the reason they couldn't do it was because there wasn't any children for their children. But I was really unhappy with that because I said, well, at some point, somebody has to be first. Someone has to be the first child. Someone has to be the first young person. Someone, if, if, if that's the criteria that we have. Now, when we are, are looking at what Jesus calls us to, we live in a culture in which people are deeply cynical and do not believe that we're for real and believe that the church, if it exists at all or should exist at all, that it's just a, a, a club of people who get together because they're from Northern Ireland or they get together because um, they've been brought up religious or they get together because they're interested in that kind of thing, but it's not really that serious. Jesus gives us a far, far different criteria. And if we profess to be Christians, we have to hold to this criteria. He tells his disciples who are following him, he tells them not only that he would die and suffer, we looked at that last week, but he says in order for them to follow him, they have to do the same thing. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's an incredible honesty and an incredible radicalness about the teaching of Jesus. He does not try to hide the cost of following Him. It is, it's a difficult message to get across, isn't it? You're, you're on the campus here, and you want to try and communicate the gospel of Jesus, so how do you do that? Well, different Christian unions will do different things. Um, do you have a toasty bar? Do you do that occasionally? No, you have never done a toasty bar. Jillian, there's a first time. You know, I've been in universities where CUs have done toasty bars, where they've handed out cans of Coke, where they've done different things. And I'm not objecting to any of that at all. But I would say this. If you think that you've conveyed the gospel by handing out a toasty or a can of Coke, you haven't got it. This is not something that you go to people and you say, we've got this wonderful thing in the church, we've got this wonderful thing in the Christian Union, and you're, you're, you're just going to love it because it's actually going to be very, very difficult to follow Jesus Christ. That's what he says. So that's what we're, we're going to look at. Look, first of all, at carrying the cross in verse 34. He calls the crowd to him as well as his disciples. You'll notice that in verse 34. It's not just his disciples. He's saying to everybody, if you're going to follow me, this is going to cost. He's asking non-Christians to follow him. And I am not working on the assumption here that everyone here is a Christian. I'm not working on the assumption that everyone who comes to this church is a Christian or that everyone who goes to the CU is a Christian. God alone knows our hearts and our motives. And the word of Christ goes out to believers and non-believers alike. Now, taking up the cross, you've got to immediately get rid of the impression that we have where people say a cross is like their burden through life. You know, this is my burden. Um, I'm bold. That's my burden in life. I've heard people say things as ridiculous as that. Uh, I don't think that because boldness is cool. 
But there are people who would say, uh, you know, they've got something in their life that it is their particular cross to carry. That's to trivialize what's being said here. If you carried a cross in this culture, and Jesus knew what he was saying, he knew what was going to happen, you're going to be executed. You carry the cross to the point of your execution. And what Jesus is saying here, it's very, very straightforward. If we are going to follow him, we have to give ourselves and our lives wholly over to him. You do not give part of yourself. You do not give part of your time. You do not compartmentalize and say, well, Jesus, you have this, and I'll keep this, and someone else can have that. It all has to be given to Christ. It's a way of shame and of ridicule, carrying a cross to be crucified on a cross was not a heroic thing. It is a way of self-denial. He must deny himself and take up his cross. It's not to turn away from certain things. People think, I can guarantee you, if you went to a student union or you went to one of the pubs down here and you said, what does it mean to become a Christian? They would say, um, no smoking, no drinking, or whatever. It's not to deny yourself certain things, but it's to deny yourself to turn away from self-centeredness. We have to stop. We have to listen. We have to think. I call myself a Christian. You call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. How then does that square with the life that is selfish, self-centered, and self-absorbed? The Christian is somebody who says no to themselves and yes to Jesus Christ. You will never be a Christian unless you learn to say no to yourself, no matter how many times you say yes to Jesus, because when you say yes to Jesus and not no to yourself, you're not really saying yes to Jesus. What you're saying is, yes, Jesus, I'll take you as long as you serve me. But to become a Christian is to give ourselves wholly and fully to Jesus Christ. It's to say no to my selfishness and my self-will, no to my own natural desire for ease and comfort, no to the instincts and desires which rage within me. That's what the Bible means when it talks about crucifying the world. And it does mean saying yes to Jesus, yes to what He wants. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, immediately, some people, maybe some here are going to say, yeah, but wait a minute, this is, that's pretty heavy. Surely Christianity is about grace. So why this emphasis on cross-carrying and denial? It's by this that the reality of our faith is proved. What right does Jesus have to ask that? Nobody has a right to ask that except Jesus because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And here is the amazing thing. Jesus never calls us to face something that he did not face himself. A great leader does not send people to do what he himself is not prepared to do. Stories told of Alexander the Great, who set out in pursuit of Darius the Persian, and it was a long, quick force march. His soldiers nearly gave up because of raging thirst. Some of the Greek Macedonians got some water in skins from a river and came across Alexander. They offered him the water, and he asked them why they had taken water since it had really been banned from them. 
but they'd got it for their children, but they were prepared to give it to him to sacrifice it for him. And he refused to drink, stating that his men would be discouraged if he drank, and they did not. And when his soldiers saw what he did, they themselves were greatly motivated and followed him. There's a Roman general called Quintus Fabius Cuncator, who was discussing how to take a difficult course of action. One of his counselors said to him, look, let's take this course of action which will only cost the lives of a few men. And Fabius the general looked at him and said, are you willing to be one of the few? See, it's kind of different in our culture, isn't it, when we have politicians who send people to war and they talk about the sacrifice of war. But are you willing to be one of the few? Jesus calls us to take up his cross, take up the cross because he went first. We're following him. His way is the way of the cross. The old hymn says, if we will not bear a cross, you won't wear a crown. A religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. And there are some of you here for whom, yeah, see you is great. Church is great because you get so much out of it. But the first time you face any real serious difficulty in opposition, you're out of here because it's just too hard. It's just too difficult. It's not what you expected. Let it be known that to follow Jesus Christ is the way of the cross. P.T. Forsyth says this, there is no new insight into the cross which does not bring whatever else comes with it, a deeper sense of the solemn holiness of the love that meets us there. When, as, as we did this morning, we had communion. When you come to the cross, there is a solemnness there is a, a horror, there is a beauty, there is a joy, there is a, a, a love that meets us there. That means when we are aware, when we live in the shadow of the cross, when we live in the beauty of the cross, that we are people who are not focused on ourselves, but focusing on how we can serve the one who died for us. Why bother? Well, three reasons. Verse 35 it's given here. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. To give yourself wholly and fully to Jesus is the way of total freedom. If you and I clutch our life to ourselves, protecting ourselves, asserting our rights, holding on to our possessions, we lose the lot. Why? Because it's not life any longer. If you have a skill that you do not use, it's wasted and pointless. Life is so precious that it is there to be lived and it is there to be given. The very essence of life is risking life and spending it, not in hoarding it and saving it. I'm just reading just now a biography of William Carey, the great Baptist missionary to India. And when I read it, I, I think, oh, why? why? Why go through everything that he went through? Because life is to be lived. This church is famous for being the church of Robert Murray McShane, who died when he was 27 years old. People think, what a waste of a young life. It wasn't a waste at all. Sometimes when we give, it's the way of tiredness and weariness and exhaustion. But it's much better 
to burn out than to rust out. Though, of course, there's a wrong kind of burning out as well. But the point about us giving ourselves to Jesus is surely just simply that He sets us free. As we give ourselves, we are released, we are freed from our selfishness. Second thing is in terms of the value of the soul, verses 36, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? That's a question of how valuable we are. We are worth more than the whole world. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What good is it for you to gain a first-class degree? What good is it for you to get a lot of money? What good is it for you to, to get a husband or a wife? What good is it for you to gain everything that this world can offer and yet to lose your soul? It's worthless. It's pointless. It is meaningless. I would often use the expression, we all have souls, but I've been listening to Ravi Zacharias quite a lot, and he keeps quoting C.S. Lewis. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Ravi Zacharias talks about how that statement changed his whole life, how important that statement is. We think we are bodies who have souls. He's saying we're souls who have bodies, and our bodies uh, will go away. Our bodies will disappear. They'll be resurrected if we're Christians. They'll be resurrected in the last day. But the important thing is that you are a soul. That's what you are. It's a question about what we value. It's possible for a human being to be a huge success in life and yet to live a life that is not worth living. We can sacrifice honor for profit. We can sacrifice principle for popularity. The real question is not what, does, what do human beings think of this, but what does God think of it? We can, and there's a big temptation, I see this happen so many times when people leave university like we're saying goodbye to Sarah, and there is a, a, a dropout, fallout rate from Christian unions, which the last time I looked at the figures was around 25%. People who leave university, they're part of a Christian union, they're involved. They may even be in the praise band, they may even be on the exec. But because they've never really connected with a church, I think, because they've, they've, they've never really been challenged, they don't know how to, to live in a way which is out with their comfort zone as well, then they, they struggle, they, they give up on their faith although they've hardly been tested at all. A job that brings more money and more comfort but less meaning, a life of pleasure and so-called freedom rather than service, rather than caring for and bringing up your family and God's family. What if you gain all the world's riches and lose your soul? There's the inner freedom of being loved and loving God. That's what true spirituality is, that's where God dwells in you. Can we lose our souls? Yes. Following false religion, ignoring God, going against His Word. If you lose your soul, it's you that have lost it. And that's why it's really serious. That's why for every single person here, younger or older, it doesn't matter, we are responsible for what we do 
with God's Word and what God says to us. Every church has many, many faults, and this, is, this church is no exception. But one thing we do try and do is teach God's Word, and what that means is you won't like it. If you're looking for a church that you're going to like all the time, uh, this is not a church for you. Uh, sometimes people come up and they'll say something like, oh, David, I didn't like this, or you said something that I didn't like, or you did something wrong, and I do the kind of Homer Simpson the thing, of course, because there are things that are, we, we, we say and we do, we are sinners that are wrong, but there are also things that are in, God wor- in God's Word that will make you very, very uncomfortable, because God doesn't come to you just to bring you comfort, to reassure you that you're where you should be. God brings His Word to challenge and to provoke. And I think that when we are faced with temptation, when we are faced with turning away from God, when we are faced for one moment of pleasure, just giving up on eternity, we need to remember that. Then there's the value of Jesus and His Word as well. That's what verse 38 speaks about. If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, surely that describes where we are. Then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is going to return. It is the return of the Son of Man. Jesus is confident, knowing even that though he's going to die, he will be raised from the dead and he will return. And he warns us don't be ashamed of me. Why would we be ashamed of Jesus? Well, I think we're ashamed of Jesus when we're ashamed of letting people see that we believe and love the doctrines of Christ. Oh, you're not one of those Bible bashers, are you? When we shy away from His people, when we become one of these Christians who says, I don't like the church, I'm just going to live for Jesus myself, which is all very convenient because it does become about, about, about yourself. Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I remember one student at the university here being in a class in a lecture when the lecturer mocked Christianity and said nobody believed in it. And he asked, is there anyone here? It took some nerve to say, yes, I do actually. And I find your remarks very offensive, which was the right thing to say. But it took courage We need to pray for courage. We also need to care like Christ in this way. Not to be ashamed of Him, but to to care like Him. I don't want to say a lot about this, but Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. Have you ever thought, why did He weep at Lazarus' tomb? He knew He could raise him. He had all this power. Why would Jesus weep? Why wouldn't He just go, oh, that's easy. I can deal with that one. I think Jesus wept because of what He felt. I think these were genuine tears in the presence of death. There's an artist called Makoto Fujimura, who's a Japanese artist who lives in New York and who's a Presbyterian elder. And he has a fantastic article called Beautiful Tears about the tears of Jesus. And he talks about how in Japan, the, the, the color that's most appreciated, the flower that's most appreciated are the cherry blossoms when they fall, as they are falling because they are considered to be most beautiful when they fall. And that experience leads people to consider their own mortality. If you've ever seen the Tom Cruise film, The Last Samurai, um, when uh, 
all Tom's pals are being massacred, because he doesn't get killed because he's Tom Cruise, but when all the rest of them are being killed, uh, it has this scene of cherry blossoms falling. And that's actually quite realistic to the Japanese culture. There's something in the tears of Jesus which is analogous to that. See, in the Japanese culture, what happens is people see death and, and the, the man who first coined this phrase, beautiful tears, and spoke of the cherry blossoms, ended up committing suicide, and suicide being somehow considered honorable. Jesus' tears don't lead to suicide, but they do lead to newness of life. Makoto Fujimura says this. In fact, I think maybe I put this up. Yeah, I did. Art like Jesus, like Jesus' tears and Mary's nards, spreads in our lives, providing useless beauty for those willing to ponder. Many consider the arts to be the extra of our lives, an embellishment that is mere leisure. Yet how many hours of sacrifice go into being able to play a sonata by Chopin? What many consider extra, even wasteful, may come to define our humanity. Every act of creativity is directly or indirectly an intuitive response to offer to God what he has given to us. We twist this intuition and may create something transgressive and injurious, but this creative impulse originates from the creator. Jesus wept. You see, when we're talking about giving our lives wholly and fully to Jesus, we're not saying that that means you have to be in church 24-7, praying 24-7. What we're saying is you give the whole of your life, whatever skill, whatever talent you have, you give it to Jesus. We, um, there's a, a, a film called Babette's Feast, which I'd highly recommend to you. It doesn't sound great. It's just about a woman in a, a Dutch, uh, sorry, a Danish Lutheran village who creates this magnificent meal and cooks this magnificent meal. And that's all the film is. Uh, really worth looking at, though. Fantastic, because it's done in the context of Christianity and, uh, and elsewhere, kind of tied in with that. But this whole idea of whatever we do, whether it's cooking a meal or, or whether it's learning to play music or it's the job that we have or all the different... we. We see that as part of, of our lives responding to what Christ has done for us. And then lastly, in just in verse 1, he talks about seeing the kingdom of chapter 9. This doesn't refer to the second coming. The previous verse does. This verse says, some of you here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come with power. What did they see? They saw the transfiguration of Jesus. They saw the death of Jesus. They saw the resurrection of Jesus. They saw the beginning of this extension of his kingdom. This tiny group in this tiny country would soon extend and take over the Roman Empire, but not by force. This great hope that they had, and there's the great hope of glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We want to see that. We want to see the kingdom of God come with power. It's not about me. It's not about what I want and about my needs and how it fits in with my life. It's not about the church. It's not about what my organization wants. It's not about, I mean, in, in this city, the, we have Christians obviously in different churches, and uh, I, I thank the Lord that in recent years there's been uh, a much deeper sense of unity, and the likes of Central Baptist and Logie and St. John's <coughs> and City Church and other churches as well, that we, we feel strongly 
that it's not about churches competing with one another. It's about us seeking to extend not our kingdoms, but the kingdom of God and seeing Christ coming in power. We tell the story of Jesus. It's not merely academic, historical, or social. It's to let us know what it means to follow Him. And you're left with that choice. Every single one of us is left with that choice. We can decide to protect our lives. We can decide not to open up to other people. Fair enough. Proverbs says, only a fool opens his whole heart. We can decide to keep our lives enclosed, to have our defenses so that the Holy Spirit doesn't get through, so that Christ doesn't get through. But you do that, you lose your life. It's really serious. You do that, you lose your life. But if you open up to Jesus and you trust Jesus, then you gain your life. See, I know people who've opened up to the church. I know people who've opened up to religious experience. I know people who've been badly, badly hurt, even in evangelical churches. And it's taking a long time for them to recover because they're afraid to open up again. But they really need to open up to Christ. We need to find enough about Jesus to be able to do that. The self-giving love and the total commitment of Jesus is surely enough for us to be committed to. So here's a challenge, and this is not a challenge for those of you who've come on the church call in the Christian Union, or at least it is, but it's a challenge for all of us. We need to stop mucking around and playing at being Christians. Stop treating the church like a spiritual supermarket or any other kind of supermarket, and instead to come follow Christ and die that we might really live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to apply it and help us, O oh Lord, to truly follow you. The way of the cross is not an easy way, but it's your way and you have gone ahead and you go with us. Help us not to hold on to that which we cannot hold on to, which we will only ultimately lose, but help us, O oh Lord, to freely give you all things and help us now as we respond in worship. In your name, amen.